Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, the Royal Race Row is reignited as the translation, supposedly, of Omis Scobie's new book names two senior royals who were accused of making racist inferences. Tonight, I'll reveal who the royals are that were named in this erroneous part of this Dutch version of a book. And we'll debate whether it's time for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to denounce the author and his, in my view, baseless claims. Also, he's the acquitted killer who became one of the most divisive figures in America two years after he walked free from court. Kyle Rittenhouse says he's still trying to clear his name. He joins me live. And as the clock ticks down on the truce in Gaza, should Israel extend the pause or finish the job? We'll debate. Live from the News Building in London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Well, good evening from London. Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. Harry and Meghan's claims about supposed racists in the royal family have left a predictable and poisonous legacy for the last few years. We live in an age where grievances are given the benefit of the doubt, where the establishment is toxic by default, where my truth apparently means more than the truth. They knew the power their words would hold, and many people across the world took their words at face value. Now, almost three years on, Britain is still dealing with the fallout from this. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? About how dark your baby is going to be? Potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right now. There are several conversations There's a about conversation it. with you with Harry. About how dark your baby is going to be? Potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Ooh. And you're not going to tell me who had the conversation? I think that would be very damaging to them. Okay. Compartmentalized they were concerned that if he were too brown, that that would be a problem. Are you saying that? I wasn't able to follow up with why, but that if that's the assumption you're making, I think that feels like a pretty safe one. You may recall that I lost my previous job for responding to these claims by saying I didn't believe a word of it. Well, Harry and Meghan have never provided any evidence for that highly incendiary claim. It's not like they haven't had the chance to. After all, they pumped out six hours of self-indulgent bilge on Netflix, trashing Britain and the press for its racism. They didn't mention what they said on Oprah. Harry wrote 150,000 words of family-bashing poison in his memoir, Spare, and told the TV studios to promote it, but didn't mention what they'd said to Oprah Winfrey. Meghan had a 12-part podcast on Spotify, didn't mention it either. It was like it never happened, like it disappeared. Clearly, neither of them gave a damn about royal protocol or family privacy. In fact, they built a whole industry around violating their own privacy and that of their relatives. But sort of backing up those claims about racism on their relentless publicity tour, Harry did a sort of strange U-turn, didn't he, a few months ago? Tried to pretend they'd never said them. It was, it was us. It was the media. In the Oprah interview, you accuse members of your family of racism. You don't even... Really? Well, of... The British press said that. Right. I... Did, did Meghan ever mention that they were racist? She said there were troubling comments about... Yeah, there, there was skin concern color. about his skin colour. Right. Wouldn't you describe that as essentially racist? I wouldn't, not having lived within that family. It took him two years to do that, Utah. 
Two years of the royal family are a bunch of racists flying around the world. I was in America through a lot of that period. And they all believed it because it had appeared on Oprah. Then he says, I didn't ever, never meant to say anything about racism. What are you all talking about? It's the beastly media. Well, now Harry and Meghan's lickspittle client journalist Omid Scobie, the man who lied about his age, said he was 33 when, in fact, he was 38, a bit older now, said he never used private jets and then got reminded of an Instagram picture of him the week before he denied that this week, showing him on a private jet. The man who said that I have regular phone calls with Queen Camilla. Regular phone calls. Never had one phone call with Queen Camilla in my entire life. I'd like to, but she doesn't call. Well, Scobie is back with a spiteful, lie-filled new book that's poured fuel on the flames. He says that Meghan wrote private letters to King Charles, naming two royals who she accuses of taking part in those supposedly troubling conversations about Archie's skin colour. Scobie initially said he knew the names but couldn't legally report them. But, of course, he could have done outside of the UK. He could have done it in America if he wanted to, where the book is published. He could have done it anywhere. But he said he never names names, which is another of his lies. And yet overnight, they were sensationally revealed, suddenly, out of nowhere, in the Dutch version of Scobie's book. Journalists had been sent copies and the book was briefly on sale in bookstores before being suddenly withdrawn in a dash by the publishers. Scobie initially said it was a translation error, which didn't really make any sense because how do you mistranslate names? They're either there or they're not. The publisher now says it wasn't translation, it was simply an error. But how did that error happen? How is there an entire different version appearing in a Dutch edition of this book? The consequence of that error is that millions of people online around the world now know the royals are again being implicated in what I think is a completely baseless claim of inferred racism. There is, again, massive speculation about who the people are who were supposedly making comments about Archie's skin colour, which is incredibly unfair to all the royal family. They've all been tarred with this brush now for years. Well, I'm going to end all this nonsense... Because, frankly, if a book is on the streets in Holland, available to Dutch people, containing names that Omid Scobie, the Lickspittle scribe for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, the man who you may remember, denied they had any, any involvement in the last book. And so did Meghan. Do you remember? Oh, nothing to do with it. But then in court, many months after the book was published, under oath, she had to admit she had emailed her aides briefing notes when they met Scobie. So she was one of his primary sources on that first book. Now again, we're being told she had nothing to do with this. And maybe she didn't. And maybe we should be believing Omi Scobie when he says he did not ever write these names down in any draft of his book. It just somehow popped up in the Dutch version of the book. How? I've written 10 books, I think it is now. I've never had a version of my book pop up in a foreign edition that contained unbelievably damning allegations about two of the most famous people in the world and I had nothing to do with it and didn't know how it got there and nor did anybody else. How does it get there, Omid? Surely you as the author, I mean, you, you must be furious, right? You, you must be demanding. Heads roll. And you want names, don't you, ironically? Omid, about who did this to you? Who besmirched your reputation as an author? I would, Omid. I'd want to know right now. Especially if I was trying to convince the world that I had nothing to do with it myself and I'd never, ever put these names in writing. And maybe some lawyer had come along and told me not to. I mean, that couldn't possibly have happened because you've given us your word. And as I've established so far in this monologue, your word is your bond and should be taken as sacrosanct. Well, I'm going to cut through all this crap. I'm going to tell you the names of the two senior royals who are named in that Dutch version of the book. Because, frankly, if Dutch people wandering into a bookshop can pick it up and see these names, then you, British people here, who actually pay for the British royal family, you're entitled to know too. And then we can have a more open debate about this whole farrago. 
because I don't believe any racist comments were ever made by any of the royal family. And until there is actual evidence of those comments being made, I will never believe it. But now we can start the process of finding out if they ever got uttered, what the context was, and whether there was any racial intent at all. Like I say, I don't believe there was. The royals who are named in this book are King Charles and Catherine, Princess of Wales. Well, joining me now is the royal editor of the Sunday Times, Roy Nicker, who just discovered I was going to do that. Royal biographer Tom Bauer, who also just discovered I was going to do that, and the professor of black studies at Birmingham University, Kehinde Andrews. But first, the Dutch royal journalist, Rick Evers, who has read the damning excerpt because he's seen it in the Dutch version. Um, let me talk to you, Rick, first of all. Uh, when you first saw what appeared in the Dutch version, what did you think? Well... I wouldn't think I would have some uh, big scoop because I, I was thinking that everyone in the whole world would have the same copy except it would be in English. So I didn't, I wasn't aware that it was such a big thing. How do you Of think... course it is a big thing that their names are in it, but right. um, everyone would, would have the same, same copy, isn't it? Usually? Right, well I didn't under, I, I couldn't work out in my rational head why you should know what those names were, but <laughs> British people shouldn't. So that's why I've said them. Um, and to repeat, I don't believe a word of these uh, racism claims, never have done. Yeah. I've seen no evidence to suggest they're true. I think it was an ugly smear. And now at least we can have a public debate about it and people can say what they really want to say about it. But yeah. from your perspective, how do you think these paragraphs appeared in the Dutch version? If Omid Scobie, the author insists, as he has done, that he had nothing to do with it, never put these names in writing, never supplied a draft of those names. First of all, I want to say, um, after your track record, uh, Piers, um, it would be, uh, would be very uh, unimpressed if you didn't mention these names. So, uh, well done, uh, because you're the first one, I think, on TV that you're, that's doing that. Um, well, I don't, well, to be honest with you, I, I don't, under, do I don't understand the... why... And why journalists wouldn't. I haven't understood why we haven't so far, because the moment a book is published exactly. and available to people on the streets of another country containing these names, um, you know, I don't, I don't even know if these are the two names of the two people that Meghan Markle originally with Harry claimed made these comments. We don't know. Um, but we do know they've appeared mm. in the book, a version of the book, and it's Omid Scobie's book, and we do know that under oath, Meghan Markle admitted that she, she conspired in his last book as one of his sources. So yeah. let's, wait, let's wait and see how this plays out. But again, just to come back, what do Dutch mm -hmm. people in the media think has happened here? Well, I don't think Dutch people really care about it but because it's, it's, it's the, the US royal family in this case that is, uh, is involved. Not even the British royal family, actually, because people don't believe it, I think. Um, but on the other hand, how did it end up in the book? I think it's, it is in the way uh, Omid is describing it. Um, it was not in the manuscript. What is the manuscript? Is it the final version that you hand in, in your, at your publisher? In that case, it was in an earlier version and it got erased in all the other versions all over the world, except for that tiny little country, the Netherlands, that has been overlooked. Uh, maybe someone overlooked uh, the Netherlands to send us a memo, uh, the publisher, or maybe the publisher forgot to do it. I don't know. Well, it's very mysterious. Let me go to another seasoned author, Tom Bauer. You've written many books. Have you ever known a situation, Tom, where a version of your book has appeared in a foreign version containing paragraphs you knew nothing about that contained bombshell revelations. It's impossible. And also, more to the point, you also complained that the French translations were wrong too. Mm. I mean, the problem with Scobie is everyone is getting it wrong what he wrote. But, of course, he can't probably remember what he wrote himself because it's so full of fabrications. Well, I'm not saying he's lying about having no involvement in this. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying, generally, he's a terrible liar. He's a terrible liar. Uh, we know that from his own statement about mm. the briefing from Jason Knauf, which Meghan mm. gave him. We know he's a liar. And I think he's fabricated a lot in his book. And he lied when he said he didn't have Meghan's help in this book. Mm. Clearly, he was briefed by Meghan's people from uh, California. But he says they share mutual friends, well, right? But they, those they friends should. would not be allowed to cooperate <laughs> with him without permission. Exactly. It's it's exactly. Before. This is all, this, his book, again, is Meghan's voice. Why is she 
decided to launch another war, a battle against the royal family, that's for her to explain. But she hasn't dissociated herself from... Um, Ob- have, have you ever thought that there was any racial intent no, from no, any I mean, comments I, made? No, no, I mean, the whole... St- this is actually, I explained it in my Meghan book very clearly. It was a very, very early on in Harry's relationship with Meghan. He goes for tea to Clarence House. He's sitting there with King Charles, Prince Charles then and, and Camilla, and they eventually discover who he's dating and all the rest of it. And Camilla, very as a joke, just says, I wonder what your baby will look like. Well, he, he or she have ginger hair. It's just the normal... And when that, that originally came out, it had nothing to do with racism, as Harry himself admits. It was all to do with a perennial problem. What will your baby look like if it comes from different parents? I just thought it was incredibly disingenuous of Harry. After two years yes. of feverish racism yes. slurs... He, was, the the about Harry he then said... He then said, well, oh, we never but, meant to infer racism. No, no, but the whole point is in the opera interview that he comes on to the programme after... Uh, Megan has spoken and says, no, she's wrong. It all happened long before she right. was pregnant. It happened right at the beginning of our relationship. Mm-hmm. It was just a normal tea conversation. Nearly two years before. Exactly. And so Megan had lied. I mean, there were 17 lies she uttered right. in the opera interview. That was one of her lies. Yeah. And that is the problem. He's now hoist by it. But the real problem is he's caused enormous damage. And Scobie... Huge damage. And Scobie, to get some money and all the rest, stirs it again and again and again. But this time, yet again, is definitely with Megan's approval. OK, Roy, look, you didn't know I was going to do the naming of these two people. I don't want to uh, get you involved in that directly. You're a royal correspondent. But on the wider picture, this book is getting more and more attention. It's now front-page news of many papers. It clearly has a lot of damaging revelations. It follows a familiar pattern from his first book. All the main royals are awful. Duke and Duchess of Sussex are angelic and weren't they treated so badly? Um, How significant is this book? Is it going to actually have any real effect, do you think? Well, it's interesting you say it's full of damaging revelations and bombshells, because actually, from what I have read so far, it's just full of Omid's own highly partisan views and Mm. opinions, rather than fact-based damaging bombshell allegations that I think uh, a lot of people thought were going to be unveiled with real proper evidence behind them. And I have to say, I've been asked about the book a lot this week, and... It's just felt quite predictable. And, of course, it was always going to get lots of traction Mm. because it's Omid, it's the royals. But it just feels, once again, like Finding Freedom, a very one-sided partisan. The rest of the royal family are awful. Harry and Meghan's Men of Roses. And I think, actually, the British public and a lot of the wider public are able to sort of decide for themselves which camp they're in, how much they believe, how much they don't. I mean, you've talked about already Mm. this week the things that Omen has said about you that aren't true. Yeah. He's, he's, he's really not a fan of the Sunday Times coverage I've read, and he had a whinge and a moan about my William interview knocking off Trooping the Colour from the front page. Mm. We never put Trooping the Colour on the front page, and so on and so forth. So I think, is it going to be hugely damaging? I think it'll whip up a storm, predictably, you know, to get publicity, and I feel that possibly something around these names could be to do with publicity... But I don't think it's going to have real lasting damage because I don't think people are going to believe every, all his opinions. Right, and, that, and, and they shouldn't, by the way, from my experience. But the, in terms of, I guess, the, the, the family relationships here, particularly Harry and his father, mm. we were reading signs of potential rapprochement. Would they come to Sandringham? I've got to say, I think I've got more chance of being at Sandringham than Meghan Markle pulling... <laughs> no, that's my story. They'd like to. crackers. <laughs> They'd like to. Yeah. Um, it was your story, yeah. Mm. Um, None of this is going to help because there is this belief, which may or may not be true in the case of this book. Mm. I don't know, right? But we know in the first book, Meghan Markle said she had nothing to do with it and then under oath had to admit she did. If if it turns out the same has happened here and she's authorised friends to help him and give him stuff, because let's face it, this exchange of letters between Charles and, and Meghan Markle... Only one of them can have told people about that. And mm. Charles is not the kind of guy that's going to be telling people about a letter like that, which makes me think it's her and her friends or somebody has gone to Scobie. We'll wait and see. Mm. But if that is the case, this is going to be very damaging to the ongoing trust issues between yeah. Charles and Harry. Well, trust is the key issue, and I think that was something I, I touched on in that piece about them saying we wouldn't decline an invitation to spend time with the family. The problem is, as, as you just right, rightly said... Imagine what a whole Christmas at Sandringham um, mm. would, would produce in terms of potential, you know, potential future content. And I think looking at, you know, the phone call between Charles and mm. Harry and Meghan um, around Charles' 70th birthday, it was briefed before it happened and it was briefed after. And I think if you can't even have a private phone conversation that isn't briefed before or after... I honestly wouldn't trust... If, I, if that was someone in my family, 
after what they've done? Yeah. Repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly? I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. Trust is the issue, and that's not changing anytime soon. Let's go to Kahindi Andrews. Be waiting uh, patiently here. Uh, Kahindi, we've talked a lot about uh, race issues over the years, but specifically here, there is no doubt that when they went on Oprah Winfrey uh, two years ago, they made a series of allegations directly inferring racism by senior members of the royal family, which they've never produced evidence for, and which two years later, Harry said, oh, we didn't mean racism, we meant unconscious bias and so on. Do you not feel that that is incredibly damaging to people like you who constantly fight battles for racial equality, racial justice, you know, try and, and fight proper battles about this? Is it not incredibly damaging for that when someone of their profile tries to pretend what they said to Oprah Winfrey was not what it was? Well, no, I mean, I think the allegations when they came out, we all kind of believed it. It wasn't something that seems completely outrageous. Also, I'm not sure what evidence you could have. And actually, if you listen to the clips, they're clearly trying not to say the names because they know the names are going to cause this massive storm. But I think a bigger problem with the whole way this has been, has been portrayed is Oprah shocked, everybody shocked. No, no black person I know was shocked that this came up in a conversation in the royal family. And the bigger problem here really is that actually it, it isn't about racist royals. It's about the, the royal family is racism. It is a symbol of white supremacy. That's the bigger problem. Well, because the way we white. talk about this now is completely Because ludicrous. they're white. No, not because they're white, but not what? because they're white, because they are where almost the exclusively Where white, is the evidence of them being white the supremacists? Link, the link back to the the link back to colonialism. Why do we even the idea that a, a, a country like Britain, which is incredibly diverse, an empire which was more diverse, is led by this almost exclusively white family into the twenty first century? I'm sorry, that is so, a so you're judging them by their by their skin That's color. That's the issue not, of racism. So you're just to be clear, you're judging them by their skin no, color, no, not no. the content of their characters. No. I'm, say, I'm saying their skin colour is not an accident. It is not an accident that Meghan Markle... No, they're white. The black they can't the help being white. It is not an accident that she, she's run out of the family. Candy, they're, no, the, no, they're, they're white. You're the black. I'm white. We it's can't help our skin colour. It's, it's, not, it's not about their skin colour. It's about what it represents. The idea that the that King Charles is the king of... My family's from Jamaica, which is 90% black people, and the, king of, uh, the, the head of state of Jamaica... Is this is the King Charles? It's ludicrous. That is a ludicrous thing in the 21st century. But that is what I'm saying. Symbol of white supremacy. What are you going to have a vote? I couldn't care less if it was Kate. Listen, countries like Jamaica will have votes, and they can decide. It's not about having a vote. It's about the. No, no. But the point is, you can't. There are countries choosing. There are countries like Jamaica choosing whether they want to go independent. That's absolutely a democratic right. You don't have to have our monarch as the head of state. The fact that's a choice. The fact that's a choice in the 21st century tells you there's a big problem. But do you, I'm just do, do you, you the think anyone then, anyone in the royal family, the, not Henry, just to be clear, anyone in the royal family, as far as you're concerned, is a white supremacist simply because they're white and they're part no, of a royal family? This, what I'm saying is this, the, the royal family, like the police or like universities or I work, they are, they, are, they are institutions of white supremacy. It's not about the individuals. It's about what they do. It's about their role in the world. That's the real case. The royal family should be gone. It should be abolished. It shouldn't exist if we're talking about anti-racism. I really couldn't get this which, which royal said what, because that's not... That actually distracts... What if they didn't say it at all? Why on earth would we accept What this? if they didn't say it at all, but the whole world well, has been led for two, three years <laughs> to believe that they did? What about that scenario? Like I said, like I said, this doesn't like for me. It really doesn't matter whether they said it or not. It's not you the, think they're the all racist anyway, right? It's not about individual people. Say so it's not. They are all racist. They are in, a, in an institution which is racism, which is one of these primary symbols of racism. But you know, sometimes Kate I think it's a bit surprising that Kate. I think hmm? I'm going to say sometimes you know when when your default so, position, which it always is, by the way, is that. Everyone's a white supremacist if they've got white skin colour until they can prove otherwise. Uh, it is your default position. Yeah, you know I said. And it, it is your default position. Piers, you know I know what I said. That's always been your default position. I said that the institution... Any no, white my, people in any position, position of authority, power, anything, no, they're all white supremacists, position, It does beg the question, my why, default position why is do you want to live in a country like this if they're all white supremacists? Like the... Ro- the why should I? I should, I could go home back to Jamaica. No, but I, don't, I don't care. The head of state is the king. You can go. It's the same you, problem. I can't Kehinde, even get away from it. You can go where the hell you like. I'm just saying. Why? Why? <laughs> honestly, why? Why stay in a country you believe is led in every pillar of the establishment and society by white supremacists? Makes no sense to me. Because 
the reality is that that's the world. I, I didn't choose the world. That is the world that I inhabit. And I will distress. I'm not saying that all white people are white supremacists. I actually think when we think about racism as individual racists, it's the worst way to think about it. Think about the systems. Think about the institutions. And the royal family is exclusively white for a reason. It is the head of the so-called Commonwealth British Empire for a reason. It is a direct connection to the colonial history that this country loves so much. Mm. It is the pre premier symbol of white supremacy. You know and what? It's actually, one of those it's actually not exclusively this, white. These comments. It's not exclusively white because the Duchess almost of Sussex... Exclusively. I said the almost Duchess exclusively. of Sussex is not white. I said almost exclusively. Uh, what she did do was yeah, she the, entered the, the royal family... The that proves the rule. She launched a, 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 a grenade of uh, racism allegations and has ever since stayed no, silent she, about she those. She barely did anything. And let them, and let them, and let them run riot the around family. the world. I mean, that to me... She came into that the royal me, family and her blackness was me so, is, so much of an affront that way, everybody lost their minds. That, in its way, is a form of racism, actually, in my view, what she's done. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out now, because <laughs> I've, I've decided to <laughs> no, name Pierce, the two people really named, named in the Holland version of this book. Let's, yeah. let's see how this plays out. Let's see whether Meghan Markle and Harry were involved with Scobie's book. Let's see what Scobie and his involvement in this offending paragraph and naming was. Let's just see how this all plays out. And let's give the members of the royal family that they besmirched collectively, let's give them the chance to properly respond. Because I don't believe a word of it. Anyway, Kahindi, uh, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Tom, good to see you. Roy, thank you very much indeed. And says the next one of the world's leading Jewish legal experts says all options are on the table when it comes to Israel's self-defence, including the nuclear option. We'll debate with Professor Alan Dershowitz next. Welcome back to our sense. The clock is ticking tonight on Israel's truce in Gaza. As many debate whether the ceasefire should be made permanent, others argue that Israel must be allowed to finish the job of eradicating Hamas. I'm now joined by Professor Alan Dershowitz through a war against the Jews, how to end Hamas barbarism, and to debate him, the Palestinian-American columnist Omar Badar. Well, welcome to both of you. Um, Alan Dershowitz, let me start with you. Uh, obviously, your book, Very Timely, um, you know, I, I've spoken a lot in the last couple of months of the moral quandary I feel about what is going on in Gaza. I have no moral quandary about what happened on October the 7th. It was an appalling terror attack. I have no quandary about Israel's right and duty to defend itself. The quandary I have is whether what is going on in Gaza is a proportionate response given the massive civilian death toll and given that so many of them are children. Do you understand that moral quandary? And what is your response to it? I fully understand it, and I blame it 100% on Hamas, which uses children as human shields. It has a strategy. Its supporters call it the CNN strategy. I'm more direct. I call it the dead baby strategy. What Hamas does is they kill as many Israeli Jews as possible, knowing that Israel is going to have to respond by going after their commanders, their tunnels, and their rockets. And so they hide their commanders, their tunnels, and their rockets among babies and children and, and civilians. And then when Israel responds and tries to conduct a military operation to prevent recurrence of these uh, barbarisms, they bring the dead babies in front of CNN and the New York Times. And the world, of course, sheds tears, as we all shed tears whenever we see a dead baby. And the world turns against Israel. And then Hamas does it again and again and again. It's been doing it for 20 years with great success because the media plays into it. So there is a great moral quandary. But, you know, if I were to rob a bank and hold you, uh, Pierce, as a hostage and then start shooting and the police in an attempt to stop me from shooting or accidentally to shoot and kill you under British law, under American law, under Sharia law. The responsible person is not the person whose bullet killed the uh, hostage. It's the hostage taker who's guilty of murder. Okay. So, yes, there's a, a moral conundrum, but Hamas is responsible for causing it. OK. Uh, Omar Bada, I mean, there's no doubt that the scale of what Hamas did on October the 7th was so overwhelming and horrendous that Israel was always going to respond like this. Hamas knew that. And my, I guess my question off the top to you is, how did that serve the Palestinian people? How does what Hamas did and the scale that it did it, knowing what the response would be, knowing thousands of innocent Palestinians would die very quickly as a consequence, as well as people in Israel, how did that help the Palestinian people? 
I think there's a bigger question here as far as context is concerned, which is that the single biggest organ terrorist organization in all of Palestine and Israel is known as the Israeli government. And the military wing of this terrorist organization, which is Orwellianly named the Defense Forces of Israel, has engaged in massive war crimes for decade after decade against Palestinians, engaging in the mass killing of Palestinian civilians, in land theft, in denial of water. I mean, just the list of atrocities goes on and on and on. And if we want to just go by a timeline, a question might be, why did the terrorist government of Israel think it can impose decade after decade of occupation and siege on Palestinians and deny them any prospect for a better future and not think that there's going to be a reaction of sorts? So we have this a little bit backwards. We have this arbitrary starting point of an attack by Hamas, which, had it been confined to military targets, could have been... Uh, can, you know, could mm -hmm. construed as an act of legitimate resistance, but because it also included attacks, horrendous attacks on Israeli civilians, obviously these kinds of acts are indefensible. But ultimately, we are talking about a situation in which Israel is initiating violence, in which Israeli terrorism dwarfs anything that Hamas has ever done, and we're watching that even expand to a more monstrous scale. Now we're talking about an apartheid government that is engaging literally and the mass starvation of a civilian population okay. and mass terrorism killing them by the tens of thousands. And the question is, has it gone too far? I shudder to live in a world where that's even a question. Of okay. course, these well, kinds me, of atrocities have okay. to come to an end. Let me go back to Alan. I mean, this is the problem, Alan, that I think Israel has in terms of global opinion here, especially from America, which obviously will play a key role. Um, if, as, it, as the report suggests, once this uh, temporary pause is over, uh, they start barreling through the south of Gaza, it does beg the question, well, what is going to happen at the end of this? Is, is the military plan to simply level the whole of Gaza to the ground with perhaps 50 to 100,000 or more uh, civilians killed in the process? And is there any guarantee of two things? One, that you actually get rid of Hamas by doing that, because at the moment they can't say, I've already interviewed Israeli government spokesmen, they can't tell you how many Hamas terrorists they've actually killed. They don't know, right? And it may be they've all disappeared. Um, but is that part of the military plan? And if it is, what's the plan after this? What happens to all the, well, the plan... displaced Palestinian people? They've got no homes to go back to. And how do you avoid the obvious, in my opinion, consequence of this, which is just a massive increase in radicalization from all those who've seen their relatives blown to pieces? Well, the plan Israel has had since 1948 has been a two-state solution. It was offered to the Palestinians by the UN. They said no in 1967. Again, they said no in 1990, in 2000, 2001, 2007. In Gaza, they ended the occupation, and then Hamas, by a bloody military coup, took over. I haven't seen a single sign uh, of protest calling for a two-state solution. Hamas is against the two-state solution in its charter. It wants to eliminate Israel completely from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. Free of what? Free of Jews. And then the signs also say, we want to clean the world, clean the world of Jews. That's what the Nazis said. They called Jews dirty and vermin. So the answer has to be a two-state solution and, and a peaceful two-state solution. But you can't have a two-state solution with Hamas, because Hamas's charter is against it. Maybe the Palestinian Authority, yes. So I'm in favor of doing what the United States did after the Second World War. They totally destroyed Nazism. Lots of people died. Lots of civilians died. But there wasn't an increase in radicalism. Uh, the German people realized that getting rid of the Nazis was the best thing that could happen to the German people. Okay, let me take that point. And I'm hoping point. that the Palestinian people will realize that the same thing is true. If Hamas is ended, the Palestinian people have a great future. Gaza can be Singapore and the Mediterranean instead of a place where terrorism let me thrives get, let instead me get Omar. of feeding hungry people. Omar, I mean, do you believe there's any future for Gaza that involves Hamas at this stage? I think that's unavoidable. I mean, honestly, just the, the onslaught of untruths from Alan Dershowitz. I mean, the only person who has less regard for truth than Donald Trump is perhaps Dershowitz. And it's hard to know where to begin to respond little, to all of this. Let me just say, let, let, me, let me just say, yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm willing to back it up with actual facts. So here we go. Well, First please, of all, on the question of Palestinian human shields, what did I say here that we are. Was wrong? If, uh, let, let me point it all out to you. Here, listen up. First of all, yeah, on the please. question of human shields, there is no question that Hamas hides in civilian areas. That's as a result of the imbalance of power where Israel has fighter jets that fly in the sky and a massive military, a regular military force. 
But the issue of human shields, the definition of human shields is holding civilians against their will and putting them in front of you in combat to deter enemy fire. And the only party in this conflict that has ever done that, documented by major human rights organizations and a matter of fact, is actually the Israeli military using Palestinian civilians, including children, as human shields. That was a matter of policy from 2000 until 2005. The Israeli Supreme Court said that has to come to an end in 2005. The Israeli military uh, protested that decision because it is very useful for them to continue using Palestinian civilians as human shields. And even though the Israeli Supreme Court banned it, the Israeli military continues to use it to this day. There have been numerous occasions documented by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty International and other organizations. And it tells you what this lie is ultimately about. Because if it is true that Palestinian militants do not care about the lives of Palestinian children, then what is the point of the Israeli military using Palestinian children as human shields when they are in these confrontations? So that is simply they a lie. Use them. Okay. 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 They just don't use them. They just don't use them. They blame Palestinians for their okay. own Okay, let me get a final you're, quick you're response, please, Adam. Up. A yeah. quick response, Adam. If the Palestinian uh, terrorists put down their arms, there would be peace. If Israel put down its arms, there would be genocide nonsense. of the kind that occurred on October 7th. Israel cannot, cannot put down its arms because we know what Hamas did on the 7th. They would have done to every Israeli if they had the ability to do that. Okay. And that's why yeah. Israel Israeli, must Israeli rid itself of Hamas. And that will benefit the world, and that will benefit the Palestinians, and that will lead to a two-state solution, which is not what Throughout, my distinguished no, opponents, okay. my distinguished to, opponents want. The two-state solution argument is nonsense. Throughout the entire so-called peace process, when Israel was pretending to be engaged in a peace process, support for Palestinian violence simply disappeared. And in spite of that, Israeli land theft continued unabated Building more and more settlements that was the Intifada. Gentlemen, the Intifada occurred right after the offer of Gentlemen, a two-state yes. solution. Gentlemen, right? I have to leave it there. Israel has no Why? interest in allowing Omar, Palestinians Alan, to be free I'm sorry. or establish a state. We've run out of time. I appreciate you both joining me. It's an important debate. We'll keep having it. Thank you. Please, both of you, come back again. I appreciate it. Uh, in a moment, we'll be talking to Kyle Rittenhouse. First, let's have a look at an exclusive interview we've got coming up on tomorrow's show. Something very different with the bad boy of tennis and world sport, Nick Kyrgios. Never seen an Australian sulk like Kyrgios. Embarrassing. To which you responded, E-A-D. Eat a d <laughs> Sometimes you are a bit of a I guess. I could be a douche on a tennis court, but I think we're very alike. How would you like, feel if, while we're talking right now, I just start munching yeah. on sushi? If I was talking to Rafael Nadal or Novak Djokovic, I'd be like, yeah, no, 100%. But here's Morgan, it's like, it's a problem. <laughs> People think that I've been entitled and got given everything off a plate, but you hold a gun to my to my mum and to come steal a car. It's, the Kyrgios family has definitely dealt with their fair share of racism um, in Australia. When they're all going nuts, what do you actually feel? You feel like the bad guy in a, in a movie. You feel like the main villain. Every time I went out on the court, I knew that I could spoil someone's day. I love it. Great interview with Nick Kyrgios. Definitely worth watching tomorrow night. Something very different. Uh, my next guest is one of the most controversial figures in recent American history. Carl Rittenhouse pleaded self-defence when he was charged with murdering two people during the Wisconsin Black Lives Matter riots of 2020. And the jury agreed. For some, Rittenhouse has become a heroic standard-bearer for the Second Amendment and Americans' rights to bear arms. For others, he got off because of privilege. Now, two years after his trial ended, he's written a book called Acquitted to tell his side of the story. And he joins me now live from Florida. Uh, Carl Rittenhouse, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Um, first of all, let me just ask you, if you had your time again, would you, age 17, have put an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle around your neck and gone purposefully down to where these protests were happening, knowing what was going to transpire? Well, Pierce, thank you for having me on. With hindsight being 2020 as it always is, no, I wouldn't have gone, but that doesn't change the fact that I was attacked and I defended myself. I was there to help people and provide first aid, and that's what I did. I'm on video that night providing first aid and helping people, and then being ambushed and cornered and forced to use my rifle to defend myself. You killed two people and you wounded a third. How do you feel about that? 
Well, Pierce, they attacked me. They left me with no choice. I have nightmares every night of being attacked and being ambushed and them trying to steal my gun and pointing guns in my face. It's not an easy thing to do, but I did what I had to do to stay alive, and if I didn't, I would be dead. Yeah, listen, you were acquitted, and many in America believe that you had the absolute right to defend yourself. Uh, I'm just curious, on a human level, you know, you're very young even now. What are you, 20 years old now? Yes, sir. And, and you've killed two human beings and wounded a third. I just wonder how that feels. I don't think that's an appropriate question to ask how it feels. It's not an easy thing to do. It's something I live with every single day. It's nightmares I have. It's something that I have to deal with. I have to deal with the PTSD and the trauma from having to do that. Right. I mean, but it seems to me your emotions are more about you and your trauma because your life was being threatened and, and that side of it, rather than the question I'm asking, which is simply on a human level, how do you feel about being so young and yet having on the record for the rest of your life now that you took the lives of two people, regardless of the circumstances? And, and like I just said, it's something I deal with every day. I deal with the PTSD and the trauma and the nightmares. It's not easy to deal with it. Your book, um, presumably you're, you're going to make money from this book. Do you feel comfortable making money from, from this, which ultimately is a, a, a tragic story? Um, you know, I, again, I repeat, you were acquitted. There's no reason you can't do a book. But do you feel comfortable making a lot of money out of essentially what in the end was an incident that cost the lives of other humans? Well, I'm not writing the book to make money. I'm writing the book to tell the story of what happened. I'm telling, trying to change the narrative that media keeps putting out there that I'm some type of white supremacist, racist person when that's just not true. I'm a 20-year-old kid who was put in a situation to where I was forced to defend myself, and I'm writing to put that into a book. I wrote to put the, I wrote a story and put that in a book so I can share that with everybody so they can understand what I went through how my childhood was growing up, and the difficulties I deal with today. And you can check out the book at RittenhouseBook.org if you want to read it and learn the truth for yourself. How do you feel that you became a hero to many on the far right, kind of made you their poster boy? Well, Pierce, I'm not a hero. I did what I had to do to, to defend myself. There are countless Americans every day that defend themselves. And it's not a heroic thing to do. It doesn't make you a villain, but it doesn't make you a hero. It's doing the right thing to, to stay alive. If I, didn't, if I didn't defend myself, I wouldn't be here talking today. You were 17 at the time. You were too young to legally acquire the gun that you used. That, that's not true. It's not true? That is not true. Wisconsin statute says a person under between the ages of 16 and 17 can carry can carry a long rifle with a barrel longer than 16 inches. That's Wisconsin law, and the judge dismissed that charge. OK, so you were... Le so let me ask you, look, I, I'm in the country right now, and I've talked about this many times, both here and in America, and it, I've learned Americans want to handle their own gun culture the way they want to handle it. I respect that. But let me ask you, do you think it's right that 17-year-olds in America, in Wisconsin, should be able to carry around semi-automatic rifles like an AR-15. Our founding fathers were very intentional when they wrote the Constitution. They didn't put an age limit on how old you have to be to um, exercise the Second Amendment. But they did say it would be part of a well-regulated militia. They also didn't put an age in it, and we have the right to bear arms. It's our right as Americans to to possess these arms, to carry these, ar these firearms, and to use them to protect ourselves. How do, how do people treat you, Carl, when you, when you walk around there? Well, there, there is some harassment. Um, I'm constantly having photos taken of me. I'm constantly receiving death threats on social media. And it's just something that is part of my life now, having pictures taken of me everywhere I go and the constant, constant harassment and death threats. Obviously, by doing a book and promoting it in the way that you are on national television around the world, you're going to make yourself even more famous, infamous, whatever you want to call it. Um, is, that, is that something you're aware of, that you're deliberately, consciously doing that? 
I'm aware that it's going to bring some more notoriety to my name and make me more known, but I think it's worth that risk to share my story and share what happened just in the hopes that maybe somebody who else somebody else who goes through a similar situation or faces other trials in their life, they can read it and they can understand that they're not alone and that this happens to other people with the misjustice that does happen in America. Okay. Carl Rittenhouse, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Uncensored next tonight, as hangry vegans vote to take meat off the menu at Warwick University, depriving many students of meat. Well, the menu is time to get serious about fighting this foodie fascism. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Joining me now is Talk TV contributor Esther Krakow and associate editor of the Mirror, Kevin McGuire. Just before we get to vegans and vegan fascism, uh, I've named the two royals that were named in this uh, Dutch version of Omis Scobie's book. I don't really understand why journalists weren't. I'm glad you didn't name them. I think there are some concerns about legal issues if it's yeah. denied by the two people you, you named. But I just take the view that if you can read it in Holland, why can't you read it in the United and Kingdom? And I also take the view, Esther, that I don't believe there ever was any racial undertone to anything that was said. Of course. Particularly when you see the two names that have been put in this Dutch version. It's well, preposterous. Yeah. Because the thing is, what people are forgetting was Megan wasn't there for the conversation, mm. the apparently racist conversation. She's just getting... She built her opinion based on what Harry told her. Mm. And she said, apparently, the person said they were concerned about how dark the child they was They couldn't being. even decide what year it was said. Exactly. And I'm like, why would there be concerns about the darkness of the child you look puerto rican anyway I don't but, want but if, to the alleg- if the allegation the accusation the charge is made against the people of the mm. stature yeah. the seniority of the royal family as you make it's an issue that has to be debated yeah you have to get to well, the I bottom think, of it i think the moment a book is published in another country and people in that country were able to go to a bookstore yeah. and buy it with these names in it it's time that this farcical anonymity that's dominated this debate now for yeah. two and a half years is just over mm-hmm. let's just have the debate yeah. what was actually said well, when was it said who exactly said it to whom? What was the context? Mm. And let the people who've been accused of this actually say what they would like to say. Yeah. But that would require the palace, Buckingham Palace, to, to respond. Issue... Yeah. Exactly. And, and they will. And they will. And you... There's yeah. never going to be a right of apply. But I do mm. think that if Harry and Meghan do mm. say something about Omid Scobie's book, it would be really, really disappointing. Well, they've got to, they've got to denounce it and say they've nothing to do with it. The trouble is, Meghan Markle denied last time being involved in his book, mm. and then under oath in a court case many months yeah. after it was published, was forced to admit, actually, I did. I emailed my aides telling them what to tell Omid Scobie. Yeah. She was a primary source, right, as yeah. were a lot of her friends. Have they all just disappeared? Because someone told him about this meeting, uh, about these letters, I mean, between uh, yeah. Charles and Meghan Markle's, yeah. and it wasn't Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, let's turn to vegan fascists. 
It's one of my favourite subjects. So thousands of students at Warwick University will be forced to go vegan after a handful of activists voted for a meat and dairy ban in the institution's canteens. Um, three establishments. Why, why did they allow a vote in the first place? Why is it exactly? Business? This is the thing. Why is it anyone's it's business what people union. choose to eat? But it's, it's a student union. You have votes. You have decisions. No, no, not based on what people are going to eat. This isn't a no, farm. Nobody's going to be forced to be a vegan. I think the well, fascism charge is. Well, you are. If you can't eat anything else. Well, there's nothing else on the menu. Exactly. You, can, you can go elsewhere. You can, oh, you can oh, just oh, go okay. elsewhere. So you don't 1,400, have to eat stu 1400 students yeah. will be offered plant-based. Crap, in my view, <laughs> right? Which, by the way, there is no scientific evidence to suggest it's even good for you. Well, in yeah. fact, in fact, the scientific evidence is the opposite. Yeah. That actually a strict vegan diet is bad for you. And it's also you know my, it's my evidence. Process. Who just bailed out of the I'm a celebrity jungle, looking terrible? Grace Dent. <laughs> Grace Dent, who, apart from being a Guardian columnist, which I, is painful enough, is a vegan. Think, There's my proof. I think that's a big job. Right? Look, look. She couldn't even last a week in oh, there, yeah. look, despite the fact she's surrounded by plants and bugs. Some vegan food is good. Like, like what? I, I think the Greg's vegan sausage roll oh, is well, better than the, than <laughs> the meat one. Absolutely. There's a serious point here. Why should we allow a small group of people at a university mm. to dictate how thousands of students eat? Look, if the other students don't want it, they can overturn the vote. And they can say, bring back beef, bacon, whatever you want. That's what, that's well, what you do. Why was the vote held in the first place? I mean, do they have nothing better to do? Why don't they vote on world peace? I yeah. mean, well, you well, can literally vote on anything else. I think they probably do that every other week, actually. <laughs> <but>. Yeah, with <laughs> Greg's oh, vegan yeah. sausage oh, rolls. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've tried... Um, the trouble is you go everywhere now and everyone's got their little vegan, like, vegan ice cream, yeah. vegan... Like, Shut well, up. Well, have, you wrong, vegan, you, like, have you noticed vegan food is very heavily processed? Yeah. I've never... Oh. Unless I'm seeing them eat salad, it's yeah. always like... Do you oh, know what they do in France? Chicken. In France, they ban the use of meat language to sell vegan products. You're not allowed to say vegan sausage roll, yeah, yeah. I get vegan that. steak, right? And that's what we should do there. Make it illegal. Yeah. But it, Use your own language. Call it gruel. Here's your gruel, <laughs> right? It's tasteless and horrible, but if you want it, it's in the gruel <laughs> section. Leave the meat language to me. Look, look, I've uh, got to leave it there. That's it. I've had my red meat for the night. Thank I you both you very much indeed. Yeah. Uh, great to see you all. That's it from me, whatever you're up to. Keep it uncensored, and that means telling you what the Dutch know. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.